Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everybody in between, that is Eddie Vega. And that is Chibi Ordunia. And this is Words and Shit. Brought to you by The Blah Poetry Spot and Write Art Out. The show where you get to know the person behind the poetry. Hey, Chibi, you, you, you're in the slam scene, aren't you? I may have hit a few stages here and there. You've been on some slam teams. We may or may not have won some awards. Okay, okay. Now, do you remember what it was like to be on your first team going off to a major competition? Oh, major okay. slam. Okay, so here's the deal. Uh, I was attending the National Poetry Slam before I was ever on a team. Oh, okay. Uh, the first time it happened was circa 2006, Whoa. I think where Austin, the city I was living in, happened to host the National Poetry Slam. That's so right, yeah. It was in my backyard. And I was like, of course I'm going. And it was amazing. I was like, it's, look at all these people everywhere. Uh, and, and they all know each other. And they all support each other. But they also want to kick each other's asses. <laughs> uh, l- lyrically, right? Yeah, you know? of course. Of course. Um, and it was just such the, such an incredible experience. And that really opened my mind up to what the poetry world was, or at least the spoken wor- word world was. So much so to the next year when it was in Madison, Wisconsin, I was like, I don't care how I'm doing it, but I'm going to Madison, Wisconsin. And I sure did. I uh, housed... I was housed by the San Antonio Budo Slam team that was there. All eight to 10 of us sleeping in one hotel room. (laughs) That was the year of vocab. Um, Amanda Flores, uh, Monique, and I forget who. Anthony, maybe? No, I don't think Anthony was there that year. Okay. Uh, I forget who else was there, but the uh, Amanda Flores was my running buddy that year. Like we experienced uh. all of nationals together. It was fantastic. But the, it, again, it was the same thing. We're like, I only met you people. And when I say you people, I mean like the people of the national poetry slam. I only met you once last year for like five days, but here we are a year later all together again. And it's like, we've been best friends all our lives. Uh-huh. I, I love that about the spoken word community and these like national and regional competitions. Um, what about you, Eddie? Well, my, my first one was uh, going with a team with, with Rooster, with uh, Ariel Cottenham and um, Sarah Maddox to Southern Fried in Little Rock. Mm, Southern it was, Fried. It was 2015. And same way, I thought, I thought this was like, Slam was serious. And slam was serious competition. And I went there with this idea that, no, I was going into battle and, uh, you know, got to intimidate other people or whatever. And the first 20 minutes that was all over, like, no, this was different. These were, these were people that all, I couldn't tell where anybody was from because Mm -hmm. I didn't know that they were on different teams because they were all hanging out with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought they were all just from Florida, but no, apparently they were from (laughs) In a whole bunch of other places, uh-huh. um, but that was an amazing experience. And I've been to other. I've been to national poetry slam. I, I've been to uh, some other regionals. Um, 
I kind of feel like Southern Fried is a little bit different. There, there's a different sense of camaraderie there. That is the truth. There is something absolutely special about the Southern Fried Regional Poetry Slam where you truly get the sense of family, uh, the sense of camaraderie and community where, again, we're here to kick each other's asses, but we love you and we will hold you up and, uh, yeah, and we will we will we will tell you come on go for it you got it when you drop your poem people will encourage you and then your coach will you know yes exactly have stern words with you afterwards but all that to say uh we had a conversation a great conversation with two amazing southern fried organizers who have been with the organization or at least through been attending since nearly the beginning of its Southern Fried history. Yeah. And I could not be more excited to share this conversation with the world. With we, And it's our first time having a duet. A duo. A feature. We had all four of us together. There were four of us on the screen. Mm. It, was, uh, it was something else. It was a lot. <laughs> All right, all, all, all sexual innuendo aside, <laughs> let's dive into this conversation. Akid Shadow Sawyer is the executive director and former president of Southern Fried Poetry Incorporated, which owns and operates Southern Fried Poetry Slam, an annual spoken word and performance poetry tournament now entering its 29th year. Recently, he produced and organized the world's first 3D Avatar Poetry Festival, complete with a head-to-head -head haiku and a uh, nerd slam and uh, some creative writing workshops. He's also a founding member and former president of, of Black on Black Rhyme, LLC, and he served as a host and producer of over 100 spoken word poetry events in Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, North Carolina, and Texas over the last 15 years. Mm. And of course, he's also the owner and photographer of March 4th Design Incorporated. But we're not done. We're not done because today no. we got our first double feature. Right. Because also we have with us Dr. Adam Hensbo Henzi, a researcher, educator, and spoken word artist that has shared his work in over 30 states as well as Puerto Rico, Canada, England, and Ireland. He is the co-founder of Slam Camp, a summer writing academy for teenage poets, and is the director of The Power of a Sentence, a writing workshop series at a women's prison in Indianapolis. He just earned his PhD in literacy, culture, and language education at Indiana University. Go Hoosiers. Where, is he also, where he also works as a research associate at the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. He currently serves on a whole bunch of stuff. The most important part, not, not the most important, but one of the key ones here, the official poet of the Indianapolis 500. He's facilitated educational program at over a dozen prisons and juvenile detention centers uh, in several states. He's been on a whole bunch of other things. Currently is the program director of Southern Fried Poetry Incorporated, which hosts one of the largest and longest running poetry slam festivals in the world. You know, like uh, at that Little Rock, I knew Shadow was the guy taking the pictures, and Hensbo was uh, the white guy with the corny jokes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, yeah, Shadow and Hensbo. How are you guys doing? Hey, hey. Welcome. Welcome. how's it going? It's so good to see y'all's burly faces. <laughs> <laughs> How are Can you? Check? Face? Mic check. Can you guys hear me? Oh, yeah, I can hear you. We good. We in it. We live. We doing the thing. Thank you for that introduction. 
But now, let's go ahead and transition and start the show off the way we always start uh, by handing the show over to y'all. This is the first y'all I've been able to use. And uh, let's hear some poetry, I believe. Shadow, you're going first. Woo! Thank you so much for having me, Chibi and Eddie. Without any further ado, the Poets Edition. We put commas in a coma, obliterate alliterations, spit assonance with arrogance while similes smile enviously. Our syllables are subliminal and we host a perennial parade for our parody of paradoxes while inhaling oxymorons like oxygen. Our attire is draped in satire and we keep a pocket full of all the high coups we've acquired and our soliloquy is like a shot of liquor into the heart of a beast giving us the courage to speak to a room full of strangers like it's just you and me. Our sonnets are supersonic like shooting comets. So come take a gander from our veranda and be mwah, blessed by a bonanza of stanzas because we never met a four we did not adore or could not open up a door for. So come peep how our speech is oblique, obtuse, obscene, sick, ill, like a litany of limericks. Listen, if we keep spitting this shit, your grandma is liable to have a conniption fit because this poetry shit is like a religious commitment and not just some slick shit for some nitwit to use to try to pick up chicks with. See, we live this. So come correct with the lyrics or get dismissed with the quickness because when me and my clique spit, Bang! We put commas in a coma, obliterate alliteration, spit assonance with arrogance while similes smile. Enviously, our s -s -s syllables are s -s subliminal, and we host a perennial parade for our parody of paradoxes while inhaling oxymorons. Like oxygen, our attire is draped in satire, and we keep a pocket full of all the haikus we've acquired, and our soliloquy is like a shot of liquor into the heart of a beast, giving us the courage to speak to a room full of strangers like it's only you and me, only you are me, and not just some reflective imagery but the perfect personification of love. And I know I can't offer you a fantasy utopia, but I give my very last onomatopoeia to just kaboom and reappear on a show like this here, soundly in tune to that one pair of ears who really only came out tonight to hear that one line, that one rhyme with the power to save lives, the same way spoken word poetry Save mine. Thank you. All right, so uh, I'm doing something a little different. Uh, Chibi asked me like what new work I have, and I was like, well, I, I have a dissertation. So I wrote a dissertation about teaching artists uh, who are poets. Uh, so I did all kinds of stuff. I you know, did some research in a, a prison. I did some research for Southern Pride. I did research for my summer camp. Uh, but one of the uh, fields, uh, sites that I worked in was a place called Poetry on Demand. Uh, it's a popular practice in the United States. Uh, some people call it pop-up poetry or poetry while you wait. Uh, basically, it's a practice of uh, sitting with a typewriter and someone comes up and is like, why do you have a typewriter? And then you convince them to write a poem with you. Uh, so I've authored lots of poems with the unsuspecting public uh, in the last 10 years, uh, and I thought it'd be cool to kind of share one of my chapters with you all tonight. So uh, that's kind of the context. So this piece is going to talk about the notions of schemes and tropes, which is a fundamental part 
of writing poetry. And you'll see how I kind of tie all this together with two different poems about love that I wrote with some unsuspecting festival goers. Um, and that will be a throwback question to uh, what some of our experience at festivals, because um, I've been thinking about that too. Uh, so this is called On Schemes and Tropes. One of the challenges of fostering an art scene in a college town is the revolting door nature of the populace. Many of the artists and organizers are long-standing staples in the community, while a lot of the patrons are only there for short tenures as students or visiting scholars. I noticed that some patrons are alumni who treat their trek into town as a yearly pilgrimage to their old stomping ground, and you can depend on them to visit your event maybe once a year. If you're intent on building a consistent following, you have a few precious years to hook your neighbors in before they cast off toward other waters. This creates a fleeting feeling about many of the relationships you develop in these towns. It's a feeling that you may share, but it's hard to describe, and often people turn to wordsmiths like me when language is found to be lacking. I found clarity in a project called the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows, a compendium of words created by artist John Koenig, uh, who has spent a decade pinpointing and defining emotions many people have felt but haven't been able to communicate. My favorite word from the dictionary describes a feeling I've experienced many times watching people while sitting at my typewriter in the middle of an arts festival. The word is called sonder, and it is described as noun. The realization that each random passerby is living a life as vivid, as complex as your own, populated with their own ambitions, friends, routines, worries, and inherent craziness. An epic story that continues invisibly around you like an anthill sprawling deep underground with elaborate passageways to thousands of other lives that you'll never knew existed, in which you might appear only once as an extra sipping coffee in the background, as a blur of traffic passing on the highway, as a lighted window at dusk. Well, one day, a young man approached our Poetry on Demand tent and asked if I would write a breakup poem for his girlfriend. I've gotten requests like this before. Someone is not happy with their current circumstances and asked me to write a scathing narrative peppered with alliterative quips and cuss words. No, he explained to me. This was different. They both just graduated, each earning undergraduate degrees last week, and were taking job offers in different states. They loved each other, but not enough to deviate from their dreams. He had stopped by the arts festival on the way to helping her pack the last of her belongings. I pulled out my journal and started asking questions about their life together. My method here was to search for tropes, to construct the poem around. In rhetoric, tropes are figures of speech with an unexpected twist in the meaning of words. But common tropes in poetry include metaphor, simile, and onomatopoeia. As I interviewed the young man, I wrote the images and sounds he mentioned, and I thought about ways to twist them into a trope. He told me they shared their first kiss on campus, the space sanctioned by tradition, where my own parents kissed years ago. The two lovers are both ambitious, hardworking people, but they would often stop all the business to share a cup of coffee together in a little boutique. He said her favorite word is sonder, and he asked me if I knew what that means. Suddenly, I had the trope I needed for the poem. I wrote a poem called Sonder about the ephemeral love that is both precious and precarious. I changed the woman's name to April here, a name for a month of poetry and new beginnings. The poem reads, April. We floated on fleeting moments, two passers-by living vividly, finding bliss in the meeting of a kiss at midnight, at Rosewell, lips whispering I love you, a first fluttering utterance. We are both bundles of dreams, different direction, same stream, 
with brief stops off in a coffee shop, sipping hot chocolate and lattes. I found that Sonder has a slurping sound sometimes, a life of winding roads, diners, tailgates, this ode. When you pack your bags tomorrow, there will be no guilt, no love lost, no feelings of obscure sorrow. April, thanks for the fleeting moments of mine, for the nights, for being the love of my life at one time. Well, when the man returned to our booth, I read him his new poem. His eyelids starting spilling over, and he asked if he could give me a hug. She's going to love this, he said. He said he was going to read it to her over the weekend and then hold her close one last time. He said he would reach out to me on social media. He left with the poem in his hand, and I never heard from him again. Though the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows is filled with numerous definitions about murky states of being, author John Canning provided some explicit context for one of his most popular words, sonder. He explained how the concept of sonder related to his decade-long search for the words that are missing in our lexicon. He said, about halfway through the project, I defined sonder, the idea that we all think of ourselves as the main character and everyone else is just an extra. But in reality, we're all the main character and you yourself are an extra in someone else's story. And so as soon as I published that, I got a lot of response from people saying, thank you for giving me voice to something I had felt all my life, but there were no words for that. So it made them feel less alone, that the power of words can make us feel less alone. So poetry on demand is an abrupt repositioning of the relationship between extra and main character. Strangers step out from the background scenes of my life and approach me to tell their most vulnerable memories. Then, for 15 committed minutes, I make an extra the main character of my own life and try to tell an important story using the words they recognize. The best I can do is listen intuitively to the protagonist of the moment and think about how I can translate their compounded memories into a clear poem. What story does the poem end up being? Whose story does the poem end up being? Does it become my story? Is it still entirely their story? Do we share it equally, or is it like 60-40? Sometimes I have to coach participants in the interview because their descriptors are meaningless when expressed as a poem. I remember interviewing a very drunk woman at an arts and music festival who wanted me to write a poem about her friend uh, propping her up at the moment. I asked her to tell me more about the friend. She's amazing. She's awesome. She's great. I love her. With no image to twist into a trope, I struggled to turn the slurred interview into a poem of any kind of merit. When the friend returned, I read the poem with as much enthusiasm as I can muster. That sucked, the patron blurted out when I finished. The friend saw that the comment clearly hurt my feelings and apologized profusely as she escorted her away. The woman wasn't entirely wrong. The poem did arguably suck. But my feelings were hurt for different reasons. I was hurt because our projected outcomes did not align. I wanted to have a shared experience with a stranger and work as hard as I can shaping that experience into an artifact worth holding on to. She wanted a good poem. Though it is rare for someone to express such insistent dislike for the final product, we do not typically grant refunds for poems deemed not good. Patrons are not paying for a good poem. They are paying for my time and labor. They are paying a dedicated worksman to work as diligently as I can to make a number of assumptions, hoping to construct something that resonates within the unknown murkiness of the person I just met. Once at a music festival, I wrote a poem for a man's wife, and I saw him throw it in the trash. 
when he was gone, I rushed over to and held my breath as I fished it out of the bottom. I can't say it was a good poem. I can't say that it belonged on someone's refrigerator or in an old jewelry box, but I can say it had more worth than the bottom of a trash can. There is this great tension between speaker and subject when it comes to conveying emotion, which even extends outside the realm of artistic expression. As Aja Manet wrote in her poem Footnote, which consists of a blank page and a three-line footnote, the way emotion work, we exist between a self for self and a self for others. Many patrons of Poetry on Demand have an emotional story they want to tell that isn't always given space in their lives because they must exist for others. They have to put on a smile and tuck their obscure sorrows away for another time. The same is true for poets, too, who often commit themselves to the maxim of the show must go on. As soon as I'm finished writing a poem about Sonder, I'd write a poem about a couple's cat who thinks he is a pirate. Though there is a shared catharsis in producing a poem, it still takes an emotional toll on the poet to exist for the other, not solely for the self. Well, I was still thinking about Sonder and the poem a few weeks later when I was sitting with a typewriter at a different festival in a small college town, the same town. When you're a poet, it is hard not to carry the baggage of extras who've unexpectedly become main characters in your life. All poems about loss linger a little longer than poems about pirate cats. What new burdens would I help shoulder that day? A man approached our booth and wanted to know what his typewriter thing was all about. When I told him about Poetry on Demand, he told me that he was getting married later that day. Could I possibly write a poem that he could read to his new bride? I took out my journal and listened to the man's story of meeting his fiancee. He told me they had a long distance relationship and that she was honest and loving and caring. I challenged him to push past these abstractions and speak in concrete terms. We needed a strong image vivid enough to capture the energy of the moment. I learned that he's a cyclist and she is a ballet dancer. He said he fell in love with her while sitting in the audience and watching her dance on stage. He told me that the biggest impact she had on him is teaching him to think about his own carbon footprint. Now he recycles and upcycles and eats more sustainably. I wrote the word footprint in my journal. I had our trope. When he left, I began to write a poem about two people learning to dance delicately together on a shared earth. There is always a moment in the POD composition process when I, I switch from writing a draft with a pen in my journal to typing the final product on a typewriter. It is during this transfer between scratched notes and sculpted poem that I play with the schemes of the piece. Now in rhetoric, schemes are figures of speech that deal with word order, syntax, letters, and sounds, rather than the meaning of words. Alliteration and aphra are both popular schemes that commonly appear as patterns in poems. For 20 minutes, I shuffled the sounds of the words in hopes of sculpting a poem as decadent as a wedding cake. When the man returned, I read the poem that was commissioned for his bride, Slippers, for April on her wedding day. It takes strength to do the delicate dance. I learned to love you while watching in the audience. Your determined footwork said you would stay stepping, and I knew I wanted to make movement with you. I have lived my life in cycles of not seeing you, late night texts and booking plane tickets just to encircle your space, see your ballet slippers settled in the dinner chair. When we dance tonight, April, I won't let my feet shuffle. I want to step delicately, live lightly with you, and leave the last footprint. And when the day is done, 
will kick our souls to the corner and fit our feet in comfy slippers and stare out the window, wondering where our future steps may lead us. I handed the man the poem and he held it like the paper had suddenly become more expensive or delicate. For one sonderous moment, we as strangers shared a bold story worth telling. We took a photo on my smartphone. We stood shoulder to shoulder, smiling, and he held the poem in his hand. He promised me that he would reach out to me to tell me what his partner thought of the poem. And then he walked away. And I never heard from him again. And that's that piece. It's the entire internet clapping. I mean, tonight is a night of firsts. This is our first double feature. This is the first time we've ever had someone do a short story of sorts and not a poem. And this is the first time I've ever consumed yes. a chapter of someone's dissertation. <laughs> yeah. it, was meta. It, was, it was meta as hell because like there was like a poem about the poem no, a story about the poem about the poem. Well, I finished my dissertation like during yeah. quarantine, so like I was just like, ah. So it, it probably is a couple of like those inception moments. It's like when they put the mirror at the barbershop, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and you look at that, and you look back there too. Uh -huh. I love uh -huh. when you say "kick our souls in a <laughs> corner." I really love that one. When the day is done, LJ says that uh, that he wrote all. Uh, your poems. Tell him that he can take on all my student loan debt too. <laughs> you just did. Yeah, yeah. hear you. This is live. Uh, so tonight's going to be interesting because I think we're going to have a lot of questions that are directed at both of y'all that both of you can answer. But then I also want to like have some specific ones for each one of you. Um, but why don't we start with something all of us here on this virtual space have shared, and that is uh, Southern Fried. You guys have been a part of Southern Fried for, for a very long time. Um, talk about, can you talk about what it was back in the days when you first started getting involved with Southern Fried and then how it grew to what it is? This could be the next 20 minutes of conversation, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I think I'm really interested in like, how did mm -hmm. you two get there? Because Shadow's in the South, but uh, Dr. Hensbo is yeah. like, you know, Indiana. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, Shadow, I think you actually came before me. My first was 2006 and yours was 2004. Is that right? Mine uh, was 2005. Yeah, I missed that one. Mine was Miami. So what? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was, I was, I had in college, I had uh, founded, co founded Black on Black Rhyme. And we had a team, and the team was headed to Miami. And so I rode down with them, man. And it was it was a moment that changed my life. So that was my first time mm. going to Southern Fried. Yeah, uh, mine was, well, my first festival was not Southern Fried. I went to the 2005 National Poetry Slam. I went to like one out of town tournament uh, and then went to, which has like become like infamously, like people say is the best national festival there was lots of debauchery like five thousand people like uh were like there at any given time uh so i kind of came in with like really high expectations um and i got to uh i, I didn't get to semifinals in indie but i got close i got 15th in the competition not no knowing what the hell i was doing 
So of course, as like a 23 or 24 year old, I got a big head. Uh, so I decided I'm going to go to Sun and Fry the next year uh, and like, you know, see, see what it's all about and, and throw down. It was in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and I remember getting there uh, with my crew and we like arrived late and Jerry Hardesty. Uh, and at the time I was living in Bowling Green, Kentucky, Eddie. So I was not yet. Technically. Was that greenhouse greenhouse poetry? Yeah, great for with greenhouse poetry. I had just finished my undergrad. Uh, I was like, uh, I had done speech and debate, uh, so I got into uh, a lot of people graduate from speech and debate and go into like poetry uh, slam. Like uh, uh, a lot of people, um, like Buddy Wakefield, and there's like, did you do speech and debate too, Eddie? <laughs> Eddie, yes, <laughs> all kinds of people. So I show up to Birmingham and Jerry Hardesty's there. She's one of the hosts and she goes, Bowling Green, Bowling Green. And I was like, see, I told you guys, people know who I am, right? It's like, hey, how's it going? Uh, I was like, you, got, you know us, right? And Jerry goes, no, you're the only ones we don't know. So we knew you were Bowling Green. <laughs> so that was my humbling moment, but it also told me something different about Southern Fried where like, you know, I loved nationals. That was an important uh, time in my life when I competed at nationals. Uh, I got to go back to the last national tournament before PSI um, uh, filed for bankruptcy. Uh, but the fact that, like, the host knew everyone but our team, that told me about the family dynamic and how people get along at Southern Friday a different way. And I think there was, like, maybe, like, 12 teams at that time. It was much smaller. I don't know if you remember, Shadow, how many were in Miami um yeah and uh yeah we competed and on the third day uh because we'd done really well the first two days and the third day we got kicked out of our bout because they double booked the event so we got kicked out of uh the bout and we did a bout in the parking lot next and then we got kicked out of the parking lot so then we went down to um uh we went down to a different venue so that round or that bout was in three different venues which is totally a Southern Fried story. And uh, we got like third. We did not do really well because we had to go first every time we set. So I thought we didn't make finals. And my team, like, we all cried into our beers and got hella drunk uh, <laughs> that night. Uh, and then when we showed up to finals, we realized we were in finals. Because <laughs> apparently, apparently uh, one of the teams had, like, committed a... a, a, a foul and they had gotten challenged so we had our score bumped up and so we had to sober up real quick <laughs> so that was my that was my first um uh, four and a finals i felt very smooth yeah as you can see i bumbled a lot at that tournament <laughs> no and you can definitely tell even now that it's growing to i mean how many teams did we have last year it was like 30 plus something 32 i think 32, yeah 32, 32 teams yeah, yeah, even as it's grown into this huge thing, there's still every time you go is this feeling of like everybody knows everybody, everybody's welcome. Um, so I'm curious, how did you guys transition from attending the festival and then running the? I mean, I, you don't single handedly run a festival like that, but you know, becoming involved in the inner workings of a festival. Let's start with Shadow and then go to Hen Dr. Henspo. Yeah, I'm interested to see like if Shadow's going to share the like. PC version of this or the shady version. 
Oh man, you know I, I've I've done so many different uh, uh, shows and poetry uh, events, starting in college when I went to FAMU in Tallahassee, and so the year that we went to uh, Southern Fried in Miami, uh, I just had such an amazing time. It was at the beach. We we did our practices on the beach, um, and there were bouts where there were like just thirties all around. So that was like that just blew my mind. So I started going, uh, you know, pretty much every year after that. And, you know, it just, it got to a point where it's just like, oh, well, this, this looks like something that I would love to uh, be able to introduce to my community, right? And at the time, uh, you know, it was really easy to host a Southern Fried. You would go to the Slam Master, uh, you put your hand up and you say, hey, I want to bring this thing to my city in two years. And everybody will say, what do you guys think? What do you think? What do you think? And we'll say, yeah, let's do that. And so, you know, two years later, everybody would show up in that city. So I was just like, well, you know what? I think this is a great opportunity to share the experience with uh, Tallahassee, Florida. So at the time, uh, my best friend, Paul D, and I, uh, we had both been going to Southern Fry together. And we were just like, yeah, I mean, there's something we could do. So, you know, we put the plans together. Um, we, I think we, we did the first presentation at the Southern Pride uh, for our event uh, that was going to be in Tallahassee, the festival. And, you know, I think that from that point on, people were like, oh, this is a little bit different. Let's, yeah, let's go to Tallahassee. And so that's kind of like how we got involved. Just kind of like, you know, saying, hey, this is something that I, I love and I think you guys will love. And you know, we just started laying the bricks for that. So that's how we got involved. That's that's a PC version. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll try not to get too much in my like old guy, like soapbox, but like, uh, so when Southern Fred started in 1993, I think it started, uh, there were six teams. Uh, and this is before anybody's time here, uh, obviously. Um, it was all in one venue. So they could just like do the entire show in one space and Southern Fried's infrastructure had not really grown as far as festival organizers in that 25 years. So we had grown to this team of 32 multiple venues. We've got like community service projects and like side events and like all kinds of stuff like that. So it had, when, when I first got to Southern Fried, it was kind of the expected thing to just like, all right, you're done with your bout, you're emceeing the next bout. Uh, and like, there were some awesome people there, but this is like kind of before the time of like, you know, now if you win Southern Fried, like you can book a tour and like you win lots of money. The first Southern Fried prize was RC Colas and Moon Pies. And that's always been a prize, but now there's thousands of dollars on the line, right? So it used to kind of just be more organic that everyone just kind of like pitched in and then we had a picnic when it was done. And uh, over the years, uh, you know, I would just kind of like organize organically. And the first time that I did it really full on was uh, Shadow and Paul B invited me to be um, uh, the volunteer coordinator for their tournament in Atlanta. That was 2011, right, Shadow? Yep. Yeah, and I honestly like I didn't really know those. I mean, I kind of knew Paul a little bit. I, I like I like talked to Shadow a couple times. Didn't really know those cats like that. I was like, I don't know why you guys are picking me for this, but like, let's do it. 
Um, and then like none of us slept that tournament and <laughs> hosted a fantastic uh, uh, show. I like went back and I like realized like Ninth Wonder was the DJ at finals. Like just ridiculous. Uh, they had like golf carts taking people to different venues. It was a really, really fun tournament. Um, and then as the tournament got bigger, it just needed a little bit more care. Um, and like, so kind of keep this in perspective, like every single year, the tournament host had to like make a new website, had to like book new hotels, didn't know what the numbers were. Um, you know, like basically had to start over from scratch every single time. Uh, and we, after there's been several times that like people didn't get paid or like things got mismanaged. So it just became more conducive to have a central body uh, that could have some quality control. Um, and Bill Abbott writes this about, uh, about this in his book. If you're interested about Southern Fried History, it's called Let Them Eat Moon Pie. It's available on Amazon. Uh, he wrote that it used to be a trend that every third year, the host city would just fall apart with like infighting and would fight about money. So a lot of the like old teams from like Johnson City, Tennessee, and like Virginia and like Memphis, uh, Lexington, those teams aren't around anymore. It's because the hosting of Southern Pride was almost too much. Um, and so now we have a host city. Um, we hosted an awesome Southern Pride a couple years ago in San Antonio. So Eddie knows yeah, that. one of my favorites. Yeah, uh, that that was a fantastic tournament. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, uh, hosting a festival is really high stress. Um, and like now, our goal is just to like uh, try to be conducive. Um, we're also trying to be like uh, you know, um, we're, we're trying to instill a quality product, but also like uh, we want to give the host city their vision of what their Southern pride looks like. So it's definitely been a learning experience for me in my life. And I think uh, shadow probably feels that way too. Um, and I feel very fortunate that this community has given us the trust to um, lead um, in that a little bit. Mm -hmm. What's, what's yeah. like, you know, it seems uh, as much work as it's been for you, it seems it's also been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, Shadow, I you, like, you have some of my favorite, favorite yeah, memories? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the one thing that, you know, I kind of look forward to every year. Um, just, you know, fellowshipping with, with people with like minds, uh, some incredible artists. Uh, but I think, you know, for me, I, I think that, that watching Southern Fry grow um, since I started going in 2005 to just kind of like what it is uh, today, you know, that has probably been the most fun. Uh, just being able to to see it mature, uh, become uh, an entity onto itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I mean, poetry punch is good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's always a lot of fun. Who's got the best recipe though? Oh, that's that's like the most that's like the most politically charged thing you can even ask. All right, all right, okay. Uh, can you have the top five, maybe? Uh, not, no, no particular order. Just these are five great ones. Uh, so, like, Dasan is the originator. Yes. Uh, uh, Axiom had a brew for a while. Um, LJ had uh, his own brew. Um, who else had some some poetry punch? 
I had I, I had my spin on it uh, in uh, Greenville. I don't know if anybody had it. It was the pineapple rum punch. That was my take on the poetry. Punch. I don't I don't I don't remember that one. I, I don't remember. Yeah. Maybe you don't remember. You don't mm. Maybe it was good. Maybe that's how good it was. Yeah. yeah I yeah. remember we took it to the picnic in this like huge like it looked like a big lemonade jar like like this big. And someone was worried that a kid, uh, the kid would drink it. So someone just put like booze on the top of it, like on a piece of paper, and just like stuck it to it. Who else has done poetry punch shadow? Those are kind of the people I remember. I uh, fostered, I nurtured the poetry punch in San Antonio. Yeah. <laughs> and whatever people brought me, I just threw it in there and just kept serving it. So alchemy. Yeah, can't say that I made it though. <laughs> I'm curious. So you guys talk about how you know it's grown from you know what it was into this entity and now this this nonprofit. And you guys are transitioning in your roles. Like, what do you see your new roles within the um, entity being? Uh, that's oh a good man, question. that's a question. Yeah, question. Go ahead, Shadow. Let's start with Shadow. I think that um, you know what we. What we try to do with Southern Fried, um, the past, I guess you would say right now, Hensbo, maybe five years or so, uh, is really build infrastructure um, for artists and poets uh, that they can rely on, they can trust. Um, and I think that that when we became uh, a nonprofit entity, that one of you know our main missions was to highlight and showcase the best of. Uh, Southern Fried creativity, Southern creativity. Um, I think that's grown, obviously, uh, to be even beyond that. Um, so I think that as president, you know, the first president of that particular entity, really my goal was just to try to st stabilize, you know, the organization and also provide a community for people uh, that they could rely on year in and year out. Uh, now that I'm transitioning to a different role um, as the executive director, um, I see my role, you know, more of kind of like similar or, or, or very close to, but uh, just in the sense of internally uh, just finding better processes, better protocols, um, improving uh, the art form as best as I can and introducing it to, uh, you know, new, new, newer audiences, more global audiences. Mm. Uh, so that's kind of like short answer. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, because what the structure of Southern Friday has always been is that we go to a different city and somewhere in the South. Um, and I think that a lot of times uh, cities don't really know how much work it takes to host a festival that size, um, that it really does take two years. Each host city has two years to plan it. So I would say like sometimes we would go and it's a mad scramble the entire time. And then sometimes we get to the festival and it's like, oh, everything's taken care of. And I find that those are the most fun festivals. And honestly, uh, San Antonio was one of those for me. Um, we definitely had some scramble moments leading up to the festival, but like Shadow and I were chilling at, in San Antonio. Like y'all had everything taken care of. I loved walking on the canal um whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> wait a second wait we got to stop you there <laughs> what? what the river walk the river walk i'm sorry <laughs> oh it's not a canal is that it's what it is there's no there are no canals it is, it is, it is part of a flood control uh system 
Flavio now referred to it as a canal. I see this is shot fired. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that used to be the entirety of Southern Fridays. We're going to prepare for this one week out of the year, um, and that's going to be it. And that's why uh, we're really happy with this poetry uh, virtual festival uh, for two reasons. Is One, we get to say that we didn't cancel Southern Fried in the year of COVID. Um, you know, like, uh, and I, I would have been sad if we, ha you know, I definitely have been uh, getting into the virtual shows in the COVID time. I would have been sad if we had like a three day long Zoom session. Uh, that just would have been rough. So like, I was really happy we had something different. Um, uh, Eddie was an organizer of it. Uh, Chibi, you were an awesome MC uh, at the event. And if that's possibly something um, if we are able to invest in that virtual campus space, we can do something like that every month or quarterly. And so we're looking to just do some different events like that that aren't just that week-long festival. Um, we always want to preserve the festival as like a place for competition uh, where the Slam Masters have a lot of say in what happens at that tournament. But um, we've got a cup. I don't know what to like say. We got some other stuff cooking up. Um, and honestly, in this time of COVID, a lot of cities have reached out to us and been like, y'all want to get down? Y'all want to do something? Um, and we don't have anything really planned formally yet, but I have a feeling that, um, we're going to have the opportunity to do some more like smaller events, side events. We talked about doing a conference before that's more academic. Uh, one that's just kind of like, do we even want to do poetry? Let's just like get together and like commune. Um, you know, so like we have some, uh, we have some like ideas we're tossing around. And now that Shadow and I are transitioning from festival planning and we're going to be focusing on the day-to-day -day operations of Southern Fried, we're hoping that that is going to give us some opportunities to do some special things um, that aren't just about the Southern Fried Festival. Nice. There, there's a really interesting question uh, in the in the chat about, uh, you know, it says, is there any fear that Southern Fried can get too big and lose the Southern flavor and mindset? Yeah. But I know that there's there's rules that, that might, that kind of help that. Yeah, I feel like that's like the debate that we always come back to. And like, I mean, do you feel that way, Shadow? Like, you know how the Washington Post, like every six months posts that like poetry is dead, uh, like article, <laughs> <laughs> like is poetry still relevant? Like, I feel like that's the kind of come back to Southern Pride of like, is it going to become too big? Is it going to become, you know, and if I can be transparent, I feel like some people felt that way about going to Texas for the first time, right? Like, your tournament was the first time. Texas has always been part of Southern Fried, um, but that was our first uh, mm -hmm. tournament into the mm -hmm. entire Texas territory. And Texas has a lot going on as far as Slam. I mean, you guys have uh, your own invitationals. There's another regional there. Um, but, I mean, San Antonio was freaking awesome. Y'all uh, thought you knew what heat in the South felt like, <laughs> and then you came to San Antonio. <laughs> Man, I, still, I walked everywhere with a towel. I still think Atlanta was the hottest. That was the like most I ever like thought I was gonna uh, heal over. Uh, but San Antonio definitely was hot. Shadow, what are your thoughts? 
Well, I mean, I second what, what Hensville is saying for sure. I think that, you know, uh, innovation uh, is definitely something that's always on the table. Um, but I think that, you know, the Southern Fried essentially is owned by the people, right? It's, it's run by the Slam Masters and they have the opportunity to decide based on the times, you know, what direction they want Southern Fried to go ultimately. I think that, um, you know, size is relevant to who, who you know, whoever is, is talking about can it get too big. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, the, the small town family feel is definitely one of our guarantees uh, when you come to Southern Fried, that you have that feel of like, you know, you, you belong here and it's, you know, it's not overwhelming. We try to make it as, you know, inviting to all, all people from all walks of life. Uh, but I think that, you know, we would have to just kind of look and see, you know, I don't, I don't think that saying, oh no, Southern Fried is always going to be 24 teams or it's always going to be 32 teams. You know, if, if a whole city decides that, you know, they want to open it up a little bit, it's something that we consider and debate on. Um, but I don't think it's anything that I can say, oh yeah, you know, I don't think, you know, it was going to get too big. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, I don't agree with that sentiment. Mm-hmm. But well, like ge- geographically, there's still also, you know, it, it's it has to be in the southern region, and there are in the in the constitution right. bylaws, there's still mm-hmm. it says where it can be hosted, certain states where right. it can be hosted, and then uh, it also is open. You open it up registration wise to southern teams first, before those other teams uh, can can register. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, there's always going to be like a, a southern anchor, maybe a southern base. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and as you said earlier, I live in Indiana, so I'm not even technically in the South, but I've always been a proponent of uh, we need to keep Southern Fried in the South. Um, Southern Fried was really started. Um, I, I, I hesitate to use the word affinity space because I think that has become um, a, a term for uh, cultural affinity or racial affinity. Uh, but Southern Fried was started as a space because like in the early 90s chicago was getting all the hype you had uh, san francisco and you had like new york but at the same time there were slams going on in Asheville, north carolina and in tennessee uh and in the, uh you know uh and a lot of the artists didn't feel like they were getting the same shine uh or just the same space opportunities yeah, mm-hmm. so Southern Fried became a affinity space for poets from the South. You know, now we have people from like Baltimore's one before, and uh, yep. you know, Hawaii uh, uh, have come. Yeah, uh, and they argue that there's more Southern than everybody. Like if you look geographically, <laughs> like that too. Um, you know, but for me, I think that Southern Fried changes the notion of what people consider the South. Right, like. People have stereotypes about the South that, oh, well, we're more racist than Chicago or New York, or we're dumber or don't have as good of poetry as Chicago and New York. And if you look at, I personally, I would compare any photo of nationals to Southern Fried, and you'll see that it is a Afro-diasporic space at Southern Fried. Uh, You'll see that we have... um, uh, Latino poets at Southern Fried, queer poets at Southern Fried, trans poets at Southern Fried, uh, Asian poets at Southern Fried, uh, 
all kinds of people, people who have academic backgrounds and people who are homeless. Um, I think that all of those lives are represented at Southern Pride. And that is true of other places, but I think that that does something special for the South. It changes the idea of what Southern literature is, what Southern style is. And I think that's really, really important. And no matter how big we grow, we want to preserve that. I think that's really, really vital. We have a, uh, speaking of, you know, looking towards the future, uh, we have a really great question coming from LJ, who's asking, how has artistry treated you guys during COVID? And what are your plans when things open back up again? Let's, um, let's start with Dr. Hansbo. Uh, that's a great question. Cause like I have, I, you know, I just finished my dissertation. So like I have been on my video game grind. I have not, this is like the perfect time to like take a, a step back. Um, you know, uh, it was weird to like finish that like really hard writing crunch at the end. And I think at this time, I always kind of think about like, there's times that I have a lot of input and a lot of output. Um, usually like I read or I like consume a lot of media or, and then like I have a, a period of like, oh, I'm gonna write a lot, go out do a lot of shows. And I'm not doing any of that. I'm just like <laughs> watching movies and like, um, you know, I'm trying to, uh, there's a lot of uh, issues going on in Indianapolis uh, related to the Black Lives Matter movement that I feel like I've tried to invest myself in. Uh, so that's been a change of pace. Um, I, I think for me, I miss catharsis. Um, I don't ever want to say that poetry is therapy because I think that therapy is therapy. But I definitely, <laughs> I was just telling my partner Siren, like, I wish I could go to a random ass open mic unannounced. And then like put my hoodie up in the back and like have a drink uh, and then like sneak up and like put my name on the list and just wait. I miss that so much. I miss that. Um, you know, I had a, a tour canceled because uh, of COVID. I probably lost about three or four thousand dollars worth of income because of my uh, stuff that was canceled. Uh, but honestly, I just like. I miss the people. Um, one of the last events we got to go to was an open mic, literally the day before the world shut down. And uh, we knew COVID was coming, but everybody wanted to have like one last hug. Uh, and I was like, I'm trying to give you the elbow, but okay, fine. And I miss the hugs. I miss, um, I miss just like talking with people. Cause like poetry events, like there's poetry there, but you also like find out how people's kids are doing and find out how people's lives are. I miss that community. Mm. Our last weekend was AWP and then the world shut down. Yeah. <laughs> what about you, Shadow? How's the artistry treating you in COVID and what do you want to do once the world opens up again? Um, man, you know, it really has, has changed how I look at artistry. Um, you know, it used to be a time you just, you know, you, you go through a certain set of steps, I guess, you know, if you're writing a poem, or you know the medium that you use to communicate your artistry, um, but I think that now post COVID, we're in a time where everything is kind of like on the table, right? Like you were telling us before the show started, how you have 24 of these shows, you know, and they all started like right after COVID, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like that's the kind of uh, uh, track I'm on. It's just really uh, finding ways to to uh, innovate. So you know, one of those examples. Uh, 
Adam alluded to earlier is at the beginning of, of August, and you guys were part of it, we hosted the, uh, the first ever virtual poetry uh, festival, uh, which was, you know, a crazy idea. I think everybody thought I was, I was just mad uh, <clears throat> when I came up with the idea, but it was just really, you know, an opportunity for us to see uh, how else we could channel our art form and, and share it with uh, different types of audiences. Uh, so I think that that's an example of just, you know, trying to innovate, um, you know, it, it, it showed that there is definitely a need for that kind of, uh, of interaction, like, like Adam also said, which is like, you know, I know I can't touch you, I know I can't see you necessarily, but I think that if we find innovative ways to use technology, uh, we can still share our experiences with each other. So that's kind of like how I'm approaching it. Um, it's been it's been a little bit tough. Um, you know, I basically have been working from home for the last 30 or so weeks, uh, which is crazy when you really look back on that time. It's like, man, that's we're talking about back in March and we just started September. Um, so a lot has happened. I spent a lot of time in a, in a garden back here just kind of gardening, taking my mind off of stuff. But I think that once we open back up, if we open back up, mm. uh, what I'm really looking forward to is, um, you know, Southern Fried in Louisville next summer. Um, if things go according to plan, uh, we'll be going back there. We had a great time in 2017 with Lance uh, Newman out there in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so I think that, you know, those are the kind of kinds of things that I'm doing and looking forward to. Mm. Uh, but it's just, you know, it's taking it one day at a time, you know? Yeah. I really miss, I miss seeing you guys, being around you guys, you know, being a poetry punch, staying up to four o'clock in the morning, working on scores. <laughs> I would say the festival, the, the virtual festival was really cool in that you got to see people that you were, you know, that you had, you're used to seeing it every June. You know, yeah. got, you know, get to yeah. like and, and have conversations with him, them, and and uh, complain that the avatars uh, weren't totally like not complain, but say, hey, I am like a hundred pounds thinner with this avatar. Thank you very much. <laughs> Body positive. We are working on that. Body positivity. Yeah, so that, those are cool. And um, but I, you know, I'll tell you one of the really cool things, and I think it's because of COVID that I don't know if I would have this would have been cool to me. Um, and, and Shadow, you caught me because I was in that boat. <laughs> and I just drove that this boat around the vir this virtual boat around this virtual island for probably about a good fifteen minutes, and it was so relaxing, so cool. <laughs> watching the fireworks go off at night, you know, and from different yeah. angles recording. I and I just I just needed that, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, it's like, what do we do when everything shuts down? Uh, mm -hmm. We innovate, and that's what poets and artists do. So well, I, I made this joke that uh, the Southern Fried Virtual Festival is what the Fire Festival was trying to be. <laughs> like, listening to hip hop or like there's people like on a island. Yeah. island. So uh, if I could say like one more thing real quickly, like I, I do think that we are in like an uh, important time of civil rights, one of the most important times in our country's history. And the only difference is that we have it's very hard for artists to lead us right now that artists can't take space. 
Um, you know, we're getting a couple albums every once in a while, but like there's not concerts and shows and poets on the corner. Um, and so I think that's like a challenge for all of us to, um, if we are um, uh, wanting to go with these kind of like progressive movements, uh, I can't wait until the poets are able to like get out the gate and like be leaders again in that way. I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Some uh, backstory for anybody that's watching that doesn't know what the Southern Fried Virtual Poetry Festival was. It was basically like, think of The Sims, but, you know, in a small contained world where everybody had their own little, the, their own little avatar, avatar uh, yeah. of themselves. And you literally are running around and doing all sorts of things. It was crazy and trippy. And I felt like we were in the Matrix. Um, <laughs> we had... It was, it was, I enjoyed, you know, like, and like you said, yeah. even if we just get together for the after party, sometimes we don't even need the poetry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a great comment slash question in the comments and it's rather lengthy. So I'm just going to read it. Uh, and then I, I, unless Eddie's got another question, I think this is a really great one to end on. Um, it says, just last week, one of my sophomore English students caught me during a writer's workshop uh, we were drafting shout out poems and he said that he had a question. He's a rough country boy committed to becoming a diesel technician and working on his family's farm. He asked, why do we always do poetry? I mean, we've done some kind of poetry since kindergarten. Why do you keep teaching it? I was floored by the question because it wasn't with snark. He was sincere, but I was also keenly aware of his skepticism. I keep rethinking my answer. I'm curious what yours would have been. Why do we keep teaching poetry? That's a great question. I love that so much. I'm gonna try not. Shadow, will you go first? Cause I'll talk to no, you. No, you go first. Cause I know you're <laughs> jumping at the bit and you've actually <laughs> studied and gotten your PhD in this. Well, well, I mean, one of the reasons I decided to become an educator who focuses on poetry is because I hated poetry. I hated the units when I was a kid. I mean, like, we would just read like Byron and like Shelley and just like, it just seemed disconnected from yeah. what we were doing, you know? And um, so I'm 37 and I would the struggle in school. And then this thing called deaf poetry was starting to get popular. And I would go home and these like Bo Sia and Saul Williams who like spoke this like language of hip hop and like, cussed and like um, i mean like talked like a normal fucking person like didn't, you know like that engaged me and it was just like so odd to me that like i as a a teenager had this poetry practice that was completely dismissed when i would go to school it didn't matter it didn't it wasn't valued it wasn't brought into the curriculum and poetry is the most popular it's ever been because we have this fucking thing called hip hop. All I guarantee you that dude listens to hip hop. I guarantee you he's got favorite hip hop artists. He knows the bars. He knows the rhythm and the cadence. He knows all those things, but it's probably not something that's valued for his teacher. So I think that the reason that we teach poetry is if you think about the era of Donald Trump, uh, where our education system is being obliterated, where testing is being canceled uh, massively because of COVID. The one thing that would help so many people is to be attentive 
and kind and delicate and graceful. Like that's what's missing from our society in a lot of different ways. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot more um, employers are starting to see this, that the skillful art of communication and of just like sitting with a person and sharing and empathizing with them is a skill that a lot of Americans do not possess and do not have. Mm. And that should be the focus of poetry education is how do we have this dialectic exchange? How do I compare my world and my tropes to your world and your tropes? And how do we use that to build relationships with each other? And sadly, most teachers don't know how to do that. And honestly, you're, a lot of your teachers are just as scared of the poetry lesson plan as you are because they don't know how to teach it. They don't know how to make it relevant and engaging. But I will say that's why the four of us have careers uh, <laughs> and get invited to schools and our teachers. Um, I consider every single person here an educator. Um, sadly, there's a need for us, but also like it's also good to be needed. Mm. So that's my, that's me pausing before I like talk for forty more minutes. About <laughs> <laughs> that's on your answer. <laughs> Shadow and I think and that the snap that's my friend uh that's my friend Heather who's a teacher. Um so we often collaborate to uh uh Heather's poetry units are good on her own, but um I feel very fortunate to collaborate with some different teachers to uh make their classroom as fun and engaging as possible. All right now I'm gonna jump up. She asked the question, so there you go. Shadow, anything to add? No, I was just going to say thanks to Heather for that question. I think that we should always be constantly questioning and asking questions about, you know, ourselves and, and you know, our art form. Um, we, we keep teaching poetry because of its power, right? Like, you know, it's, it's the oral tradition, it's the written tradition, and that goes back to since before uh you know tvs and smartphones and all that kind of stuff and it was how you know you were able to transfer power from uh, a thing to a thing right it's, it's something that the Hansbo and i all, often talk about is you know standing in the gap as poets standing in the gap as artists uh being able to to use our words to describe uh things that others can't describe um and so i think that that the, the power within poetry is what's kept me going for, you know, almost 15 years. Um, I think that that in moments when I need uh, a, a, a word, a kind word, an elegant word, uh, a thoughtful word, an insightful word, uh, the place that I'm looking to go to is a poetry reading. Uh, it's not church. It's not school. It's not, you know, at times it's not even my family, you know, it is, I, I need to hear something uh, that touches my soul. Um, and that's the first place I think of going. Uh, mm. So that's to me, the importance of teaching poetry. Mm. Beautiful. Do you, and, and you, you know, I feel like the, um, as I get older and I maybe don't want to do slam as much, um, but then I get around a slam and I'm like, well, this is fun. I kind of want to do it now too, um, but I kind of want to organize and, and 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 give that lend that. Do you have you all transitioned? I guess from being the one who was competing on the stage 
to now being in the back room and has how's that worked out for you like do you still have that drive like oh i want to be on that stage or uh, you want to take a step back i used to love just competing so i'm different like i, I think there's a lot of poets who are like I, i'm in it for the like art i'm like i love like I, I love like throwing down with my friends and trying to take their money. <laughs> so like that was, that was like a fun part. And I think there's like some purists who are like, well, that's not what slam's about. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry. It's literally a arbitrary art form where we throw scorecards up and someone wins ten dollars at the end. So you know, and, you, and usually those throwing the scorecards up are pretty intoxicated. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. So <laughs> um I think for me, uh, and because uh, Eddie, I know you're a teacher too, like I feel like there is a push and pull because I think that poet, being a poet or an artist or creative writer is very selfish. Like you need time for yourself. You need to kind of like, you know, like have this kind of space where you're like in your head thinking about your perspective and then being an educator or an organizer is very selfless. Like you give everything away to who your students are or who your audience is and i feel like i constantly need to use one to heal the other like i can give too much of myself as an organizer or as a teacher and then i need to take a wounded step back and be like what's going on in my life what's <laughs> happening with my heart like you know and then i can kind of like go back almost like going back to a dojo um, and kind of like healing that way. And then I want to share that with other people. So like, I think when I get inspired by slam, it's seeing like young people slam or like youth slams. I love watching someone fall in love with slam. I love watching someone fall in love with poetry. And I think that that is an undescribable experience, but also whooping ass in the poetry slam, <laughs> having people applaud for you. And then like, you know, I, you know, I was a kid that got told to shut up all the time in school. And now there's like this mechanism where like my voice is heard. Like, you know, I, I think that's pretty special too. You can have both. Yeah. You yeah. Can have both. Yeah. <laughs> well, this yeah. is, this has been a phenomenal conversation with you guys. I think as we transition out of the summer, at least for those of y'all living in the North, we still have like three more months of it down here. Uh, it's but it's so cold here. <laughs> I saw I saw my first hoodie today, so it's like it's it's almost done. It's I decided a, to sit outside. This might be my last time. Uh huh. Uh -huh. So I couldn't I couldn't think of a better way to kind of like round out the summer than having two Southern Fried uh, legends on our show. So thank you guys for spending. Thank you, this thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Would you do us the honor? of closing us out with one more poem. I think uh, Dr. Hensbow has been, has volunteered as tribute. Okay. Uh, thank you all so much for having us. I, I love just like having a conversation. I appreciate it. Um, this is also a piece for my dissertation, but this is a straight up poem this time. Um, uh, and I'm gonna kind of connect this with the conversation about like why we teach poetry. Um, and I think it's important to teach poetry, but I think it's also important to hold space for poetry. Um, so this is in, uh, this is basically just describes my poetry classroom in a maximum security women's prison um, and the importance of holding that space. It's called The Circle. Tonight, Hella reads a poem to the sun she's accused of killing. 
Namora says she wishes she could become that brave. I say, let's start with where this poem is successful. Not to overshare, Emma says, but that's the type of writing that makes your butthole pucker. Eureka disagrees with Audrey Lord. She says poetry has to be a luxury when you only get to sip it once a week with your commissary, Pepsi. Once, two students were kicked out of the course for humping each other on a stolen tarp in the chapel staircase. COs comb through every poem, wondering where they learned that at. Each class, I shake every hand because maybe I sound like the last man who reprimanded them. Not to try to sound scary, I wince, but Mrs. C says she'll shut us down if you're in the hall without a pass. Raven escaped from prison once and worries she doesn't have any stories good enough to share. In the circle, sometimes you start crying when you stumble over a line. I made you a painting, Electra says, pointing at the hues of the window. She shakes her head at the power lines like, why, oh why, oh why, something man-made. Gotta fuck with my sky. All right. Thank you so much, both of you, for this uh, hour of conversation and insight. Mm, absolutely. Thank you for sharing the space with us uh, and sharing all your wisdom that you have with us and sharing your words and poetry and uh, part of your dissertation, which, of course, is available now. It is on ProPress. You can read it for free. I paid $95 for you to read it for free. So, like, do it. Uh, I also want to say thank you because I work with Shadow all the time. This is the first time we've ever done a feature together. And it's like, yeah. Uh, Thanks, guys. I I really appreciate it. Over just y'all two on tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, if anybody's interested in finding out more about uh, Southern Fried, uh, you can obviously go to SoFriedPoetry.com. You can follow them on social media, SoFried Poetry, and now SoFried Poets, new page. Uh, mm-hmm. And then please tip your poets, y'all. We got their Cash App and their Venmo up on screen. You know, like tip your poets. They work hard. Hensbo and Dr. Hensbo, I'm sorry and so fried poets uh thank you guys for joining us here it has been a phenomenal conversation and honestly we can't wait to get back into that southern fried space mm-hmm. yeah thank you both so much thank you so much for having us love your show this is amazing yeah tune back in <laughs> all right so those were two phenomenal uh, regional organizers, but next week we have a local organizer that's yeah. going to be on our show. That's Eddie, right. yeah. what's the, happening? The uh, executive director of Gemini Inc., uh, our local group of writers and readers, uh, whom we are both, uh, you know, uh, involved with. Um, our Alexandra Vandekamp will be mm. here. I'm so to, excited uh, to share her poetry. And talk a little bit about Gemini Inc. Mm-hmm. Look, I don't know if she single-handedly did it, but she got me into AWP this year. So, you know. <laughs> That's right. We got Fine. to get AWP and yeah, so many, that was, that was cool. Forever um, grateful. The world ended. We got to, like, uh, 
we all did one last hug with all of our Latino friends, you know? Uh, it was uh, it was right before she got real serious. And I remember running into Ayokunle Falomo and I was like, are we, are we, are we fist bumping? Are we elbowing? What's happening? And he was like, we're hugging, man. If I'm going to get COVID and I get it from Chibi, that's, that's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> So yeah, that was a phenomenal weekend. And ever since then, we haven't physically seen each other, but we are having Alexandra Van Camp on our show next week. I am so excited. Until then, that was Eddie Vega. And that was Chibordunia. Thank you all for joining us. Y'all stay safe. Good night. <laughs>